it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Gabriel Roth, and I'm the host of the Slate Serial Spoiler Special, a podcast that accompanies the second season of Serial, which debuted this week. Every week, Slate writer Katie Waldman and I will dig into the latest episode, parsing the latest developments, clues, hints, and ideas, hopefully getting us a little closer to the truth behind the case of Bo Bergdahl. So join us every week after Serial. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of December 21st, 2015. On this week's show, Dan Ingber will join us to talk about the movie Concussion and whether it's a force for good or a force for not so good in raising awareness of Albert Brooks's chops as a supporting actor and the NFL's lies and obfuscations about head injuries. We'll also discuss another less important pro football crisis, this one around officiating and whether anything should or can be done to make the refs better and more accountable. And Sports Illustrated's Tim Layden will be here to discuss the outrage in some stables that Serena Williams and not the horse American Pharaoh was named SI's Sports Person of the Year. Horse Joining pun! Me, horse pun! <laughs> um, was, that our, was that our horse pun siren or was that actually Mike? <laughs> It's our horse pun effect. I know that was a weak horse pun, but I thought we were kind of build up, build up yeah, some momentum from a trot to a gallop. I understand. Yeah. Uh, joining me in Washington D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books "Word Freak" and a few seconds of pen. Josh, I was going really Nick slow to, to see. I was going really slow to see if I could find a pun in one of those words, but I just yeah. lost it. Yeah. I couldn't do it. Uh, with us from New York. It's Mike Pesca, dude. Best of slates. Yeah. Oh, sorry. G- give my credentials. Horse lover. 
No, 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 no. I was going to say, dude. Mike Pesca. Stefan Fatsis, author of A Few Seconds of Paddock. Come on. It's right there. (laughs) (laughs) Guys. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to jump in and jockey for position. I'm just champing at the bit and ready to go. Horse pun. (laughs) (laughs) The host of Slate Daily Podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. I'm just really not on my punning game, Mm -hmm. so I'm glad that you've embraced the challenge. Yeah. Um, So, Stefan, Sepp. He's uh, barred from the sport for eight years. Sepp Blatter found guilty of ethics violations by the FIFA Ethics Committee, one of the stronger ethics committees within FIFA. Um, I find this whole story very confusing because hasn't Blatter kind of left about eight different times? Now he resigned, but he didn't actually resign. Mm-hmm. Now he's he was looking very ragged today. He had a bandage on his face. He's a little puffy. He described himself as a punching ball. Oh wait, I think I think Sepp has joined us in the studio. Sepp, I'm I'm sorry about the news today. What what can you tell us? No, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I'm still somewhere a punching ball. I'm sorry for me, how I tainted in this world of humanitarian qualities. Even suspended, I am president. I am not ashamed. I do not regret. Thank you, Sepp. Uh, should we move on to Whimsy Watch? <laughs> I always repeat, I'm a man of principles. These principles are never taking money you have, never earned, and pay your debts. The kind of sad thing was that he just sounded totally incoherent today. It he's, seems like Sepp is really pushing losing 80. his mojo. He's pushing 80. You know, Sepp has been described as a short, balding man with, uh, who's getting a little paunch in the belly. But I think he needs to rebrand himself as the international BB-8. Everyone loves BB-8. <laughs> The horse awakens. Uh, ah, listener. yes! <laughs> In the home stretch, Josh goes to the whip. <laughs> listener Jamie Kiesecker had a good whimsy watch. He pointed out that uh, Josh Mor- uh, Norman, the Panthers cornerback, had his imbroglio with Odell Beckham that in, that game. Wrong in that um, game. After the game, he does this He does this interview where he talks about how wrong. Odell is a uh, ballerina, a lot of kind of uh, light sexism. And in the background, Jamie Kiesecker, our listener, notes that there's a Panthers teammate of Josh Norman who's trying to tie his tie and repeatedly failing for two minutes. That player has been identified as Teddy Williams, who came out of college. He didn't play football in college. You hear about guys didn't play in high school. This guy didn't even play in college. He was a sprinter. Didn't know how to tie a tie. Right, because if he had been if yeah. he had been on the college football team, he would have had to have learned how to tie his tie. Exactly, make them dress up on like game days, travel days. That's sort of right. Thing. Because the the thing is, you just have to dress up two stations higher than your work uniform. So in football, it's fairly complex. So of course, you'd have to go with the suit. But since the sprinters just wear singlets and shorts, you know, mm-hmm. actual anything with long sleeves is twice as dressed up. It's a greater leap forward. I think it's a triple jump up. <laughs> On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll revisit some of our recent discussions from this here podcast. I was thinking maybe we could talk Kobe, maybe Warriors, Panthers. Yeah. Well, we can Kobe's we can getting discuss. better. Sixers? I like it. We Sixers? Can, we can discuss, Sixers are not getting better. We can discuss what we will discuss when we discuss it. To hear this bonus segment and others like it on all sorts of Slate shows and on Hang Up and Listen, sign up, um, and you can get a free two-week trial when you sign up. And that URL is slate.com slash hangupplus. On Christmas Day, 
You can take your family to the local multiplex. Uh, Quentin Tarantino's Hateful Eight is opening. Will no doubt feature various parts of people getting blown off and exploding. Um, perhaps you'd like to see that movie where Leonardo DiCaprio may or may not, probably doesn't, but may may or may not get raped by a bear. That one's opening on Christmas. And then there is the heartwarming concussion in which Dr. Ben Amalu, played by Will Smith, discovers chronic traumatic encephalopathy, tries to tell the world and pro football players before it's too late, while the NFL is trying to discredit him at every step and stalks his wife and gets his boss brought up on federal charges. Uh, concussion was written and directed by Peter Landisman. It's based on a true story, which is Hollywoodies for none of this really happened. Mm-hmm. Landisman says the movie is emotionally and spiritually accurate all the way through, which is code for the movie is not a- at all accurate at any part, any way through. We can uh, debate all of this over the next 12 to 15 minutes, maybe I'm being overly harsh um, about the accuracy. But after watching an advanced screener, I would also like to add that the movie is just terrible on its <laughs> <laughs> accuracy or no accuracy. Um, and we can also discuss that. Maybe that's just me. Uh, joining us now is our occasional football brain injury movie critic and Slate contributor Dan Ingber, who has a piece up on Slate about concussion. Hello, Dan. Hello. Did you know that Landisman also said that uh, the equivalent of what's going on in football would be like it's 1491 and the world is still flat to a lot of people, including the NFL? And Will Smith, as Bennett Amalu, is Christopher Columbus. <laughs> so I think no, we should discuss didn't. whether no. Bennett Amalu is, is or is not Christopher Columbus. I think Bennett Amalu is going to play Christopher Columbus in the Peter Landisman biopic. <laughs> Why would he say that Will Smith wants to subjugate the Native Americans? It's very <laughs> odd. We've got, a lot, we've got a lot of metaphorical ground uh, to cover here. But I was surprised... Dan, um, seeing this movie that I just couldn't really understand who the audience was for this. It doesn't really work, even as it has kind of all the outlines and beats of an inspirational Hollywood story, just like the roles don't really seem to fit. And it just doesn't really work as an entertainment, along with just not really doing justice to the science part. Yeah, I mean, I think it, this is sort of a movie is weirdly straight out of Bennett Amalu's head, I think. Um, he apparently was the one who had the idea to make a movie about himself. Um, he went to Hollywood and said, you know, I've got this great story. Uh, this woman wrote an article about me in GQ. Let's let's do a movie. And then the whole movie is kind of just his version of what happened with other people who were working on the same, you know, looking at the same neuropathology were just kind of cut out of the film, this whole group at Boston University. And um, and then the film also has this really strong Christian message, which I think is sort of true to uh, Amalu's beliefs. And that made me wonder if maybe the studio was thinking this could be a Christian hit like The Blind Side. Except football so tied up to Christianity. So it would be a weird slice of the Christian going – the the Christian moviegoer who also isn't a uh, isn't a football fan. I mean, The Blind Side became a hit in Christian circles, but I think it embraced football. There's a point in the movie where Albert Brooks, who's playing um, Cyril Wacht, Bennett Amalu's mentor and boss in Pittsburgh, uh, he tells him, he's, you know, he's warning him what he's going up against. And he says, um, football owns a day of the week and it's Sunday and they took it over from the church. So there's this idea of, you know, they're they're alluding to the fact that that the NFL is associated with America and Christianity. Um, and then in the film, you know, Omalu 
ends up being even more American than football. He's a Nigerian guy who came to the U.S. and through hard work and, um, you know, and dead bodies discovered how, what it really means to be a Christian and I think what it really means to be a football fan. I think that's the move at the end of the film. So I think they're trying to have it both ways. I think they really are trying to capture that football-loving Christian audience and, and send this important and inspiring message about what it really means to be an American. I mean, that was what was unusual about the film to me, too, is that it really was striving to be something that I don't think that the story um, generates or, or permits. I think this film wanted to be The Insider or Silkwood or Aaron Brockovich, but ultimately the dramatic tension of the big bad NFL doesn't equate to big tobacco and Omalu doesn't equate to a whistleblower um, because all of the dramatic narrative parts where Omalu feels threatened or pressured or his wife is being tailed by a mysterious car or the FBI bursts into the scene and brings down Cyril Wecht um, as, a, as payback for the NFL to go after Omalu doesn't add up. It just dramatically didn't add up. It wasn't compelling as a movie. No matter how much they shifted the facts of this story, it just wasn't very good storytelling. Yeah. I mean, I, as I was on my way out of the theater, uh, I heard two guys behind me talking about there's the scene where Amalu goes dancing with the woman who's, who you know, will then become his wife. And it's just this interminable scene. I just <laughs> it makes no sense why they even bother to put that in there. Um, he's uncomfortable dancing. Anyway, I just you know, and those two guys were Paul Tagliabue and Elliot Pelman. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I was reading the book that um, Jean Marie Laskus, who who wrote the profile of Omalu, that w served as the basis for the movie. She wrote a book, and and you know the real Omalu loved dancing. He loved going out to clubs. I mean, that's just one tiny example of the way that the real life Omalu is different from the screen Omalu. And as I continue to read, the real-life Amalu is consistently far more interesting than the screen Amalu. But a little more mm -hmm. complicated and less clean a hero. Yeah, for sure. But even if you want to say, okay, let's make him a hero, um, the real-life Amalu has been, you know, had debilitating depression for his entire life. Um, he almost dropped out of medical school in Nigeria. Um, he, one of the reasons he has all of these degrees, they make a big point in the beginning of the film that he has six or seven um, different degrees is because he's just kind of this depressed guy who's kind of, you know, he's just flopping around trying to figure out what he wants to do. I think that fits in with this idea of, you know, he's looking at these players whose lives have fallen apart, all of whom were depressed in some way and dealing with, you know, some kind of mental illness. That's interesting. There's an interesting story there. Plus the idea that he's, you know, he's, Omalo is kind of a, a very ambitious, very smart fame seeker who has who's also out every night clubbing sleeping with lots of women but also deeply faithful i mean he's a, a complicated guy and there could have been a good movie about a complicated hero well i think the movie has a couple of problems as you describe it and one is we uh, the thinking is and for years it was true that stories complex stories aren't as interesting as people are 
you know, there's that old um, Don Hewitt line that the flood was the event, but Noah was the story. So our movie makers tell these complicated events, and this isn't even an event, just a circumstance, I guess, through a person. Sometimes it fits and sometimes it doesn't. I think in the last, I don't know, decade or so, we've gotten so sophisticated, we chafe against it. And that's why you see good, sophisticated filmmakers like um, Adam McKay, what he's doing with The Big Short, is not to pretend that there is one guy. There's similar movies, right? There was there was an event, there was a revelation, uh, everything that we believed in or so much of what we believed believed in it's turned out to be untrue. And Dan, I hope you talk about actually the underlying facts. But to pretend that there was one guy who blew the whistle on the housing bubble would have been forcing uh, reality in to fit your narrative. They didn't do it with The Big Short. He came up with interesting ways to tell that story. They didn't come up with interesting ways to tell Concussion. And I think if you look at the track record of the writer-director and even Will Smith in the last 10 years, I mean, obviously Will Smith, one of our great movie stars in history, but the stuff that he really gets behind is kind of like mushy-headed stuff like, like The Pursuit of Happiness and Seven Pounds and Focus, things with uh, th- things that are ineffable and sort of mystical and, I don't know, not just uh, meaty stuff I could get behind. And Landsman seems to have a track record of sometimes disregarding the truth in the favor of a cool narrative. Emotional and spiritual truth. Yeah. Mike, you didn't even mention the legend of Bagger Vance, did you? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, let's not mention the legend of Bagger Vance. Dan, let, let's talk about the science. Um, what is the movie get right, if anything, and just quickly, what are um, some of the bullet points of what it gets wrong? Well, I I think the movie tells this, there is a sort of straightforward story here that the movie goes through, which is there's, you know, Mike Webster, um, Hall of Fame Pittsburgh Steeler, dies and Bennett Omalu looks in his brain and he finds something very unusual, this um, hyperphosphorylated tau proteins that, you know, are similar to what happens to some boxers. Um, So that's all there. But then everything is kind of exaggerated. And I think uh, the kind of allusions to big tobacco are important here because there's this idea that the powers that be are going to try to, you know, insert doubt into everything. They're going to try to complicate everything away so that we kind of, we don't pay any attention. And the people who care about head injury are kind of forced into this position of having to, you know, make to overstate their case in every way. And this film does exactly that. So Amalu will say things like um, when Terry Long dies in the film, he, he committed suicide by drinking antifreeze. Amalu says, um, you know, football gave him CTE and CTE told his brain to drink a gallon of antifreeze or something like that. And he's, this is, you know, a very extreme statement that the head injuries caused the neuropathology. Uh, that's almost certainly true. And then the neuropathology directly led to the suicide. Um, so that's that's the message of the film. It's kind of like one of, it reminded me of Jacob's Ladder or Blue Sunshine, these movies about these guys who are slowly going crazy. You know, it's almost like a, a zombie virus. So you're seeing these men fall apart. I am apart. legend. Yeah, exactly. You're seeing these men fall apart and they start forgetting things and they're like, hey, what's happening to me? And then they end up, you know, going crazy, smashing things in their houses and then killing themselves. Um, that's this this sort of a, a caricature of, of what happens, number one, and, a, and certainly a gross exaggeration of what's known about the effects of head injuries in football. Beyond the head injury stuff, 
the major thesis in the movie is that football is bad for you. Football is terrible for you. It's all a huge lie being foisted upon us, which, by the way, is one reason I think the movie's not going to do well in the box office. I don't think America wants to hear that. And even if they didn't, it would have to be told so well to get some portion of the public not to see Star Wars. Anyway, putting that aside, I know that Engber is not a concussion denialist, maybe a concussion contextualist, whereas over the years, the conversations I've had, Stefan, put you sort of on the other side, where I sometimes have argued with you, where you will say things like, mm-hmm. uh, well, you know, football raises your chances of having list any of the mental impairments or Alzheimer's by 10, 15 times the percent of the population, whereas Eng- which is true, whereas Engber will argue things like, actually, if you look at, though, compare football players to their age cohort, football players have less suicide or as much depression, but live longer. Yeah, one thing that drives me mm-hmm. crazy is just uh, the the way this is all summed up so often in this film and, and also just in media accounts of this issue is football is killing people. These men are dying. And that is just, I mean, I, to me, that's just not true. Well, the we, men are dying. Well, people die. But yes. I mean, we have data and the you know, you, it's compared to big tobacco. We know what the relative risk of smoking is. It's something like in a given time period, you're four times more likely to die if you're a regular smoker. In football, the relative risk is less than one. It's like 0.6, meaning you are less likely to die than, your, than you know, age and race match controls if you're a football player. So we just – we have the facts. These guys are not dying. That's not to say that they're not – feeling any effects of the head trauma and all the other trauma that they experience as football players. But it's just like it's just wrong to say that football players have shorter lifespans than the rest of us or that we're watching these guys die in the field. It's just literally not true. And yet it's said so often and it's, you know, I'll I'll sometimes tweet about this and that's, you know, there's no response. I get some people just disagreeing with me. Yeah. But um, And the players believe I disagree it with you. I yeah. disagree with you because you, you use the word die. Okay. Um, logic would tell you that NFL players, on average, are during their careers healthier than the population on average, and therefore there's probably a high likelihood that NFL players, top specimens in the human race, up and until the day they retire, are likely to have an advantage after they retire in muscle mass, body fat percentage, cardiovascular fitness. Yeah, they're going to live longer. They're not but smokers. That is absolutely, they're not smokers. As an argument, though, that has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that they also sustain thousands and thousands of blows to the brain that may have a deleterious effect on their cognitive futures. And there are plenty of science that has demonstrated that that is the case. Some of it is anecdotal at this point. Some of it is really well established. Um, And I think, Dan, it feels to me like you create the straw man, that there are these studies that say all these other factors indicate that, hey, playing in the NFL isn't so bad and that we should consider chronic pain as something that is on par with brain injury. And you and I had this conversation on Slate a couple years ago, and I feel like our positions haven't changed very much um, because I do think that there is plenty out there to say that this is bad and we know it's bad. And we know that playing football can create serious cognitive problems for players, for people. And that, yeah, if you're in the NFL, you're making an adult decision to choose to do something. But, and this is a side conversation, but maybe we shouldn't be allowing children to do that because we really don't know what well, the effects are. So it's, I, it's okay for you guys to have different opinions. Yes, as, as the moderator of the show, I'm going to give you guys permission to uh, not entirely agree. And I think, like, it's exactly like what Mike was saying. Like, I think both of you guys 
bring like an interesting perspective on the issue and neither of you is wrong. Um, and so kind of my question coming out of this movie is, maybe Mike, you can answer this first. Does the fact that this movie exists for as bad as I think we all think that it is in terms of getting science wrong and just for not being a good movie, just not being interesting, not being entertaining, mm -hmm. is it still a good thing that it exists and should people watch it? Like if people who are just the average kind of NFL fan, would they be better off seeing this movie? No, I think it's a bad thing that it exists. I think it allows the NFL to say, yeah, all these people raising the issues of concussion. Well, have you looked at the fact check of the movie? They could hold this movie up right. as a giant, mm -hmm. not a giant lie, but really skirting the truth here and there. And it obscures some of the actual issues with concussions. And I, I think it's, I agree, it's not only fine that uh, Engber and Fats is dis disagree. Why wouldn't they disagree? They're actually talking about they have different values here. Engber is talking about the actual overall cohort might be better off. Stefan is saying a large percentage of that cohort is in terrible shape. The analogy I was thinking of is like drug kingpins. Overall, they probably have better, richer lives than, you know, Mexicans of their age. But a large percentage of them will die a very horrible, violent death. But I think that to do this, this is bad. I do think it's bad in practical terms. I... I a part of me wonders if it really will be anything other than a talking point, like if actual mm -hmm. minds will change. But it is so antithetical to how I think my own values, which are you have to really be truthful. You have to really be careful. Like it's wrong to win an argument if your facts and your the points that you're arguing along the way are misleading. The old ends justify the means. I don't think with an argument like that, you should be as uncareful as this movie is. Can I just point out, you said a large percentage of them will have these terrible problems. I assume you meant cognitive problems. Yeah. That, that's just not true. A large percentage of them a don't. Much, okay, a much larger Some percentage than the population. Some of them will. The, uh, I think is that we need to agree on. A yes. Some of them will. A larger percentage than the general population. A larger, yeah, right. yes. Which is more, yes, disproportionately digits. large, but it is still a small percentage. A large percentage of them will suffer from arthritis and chronic pain. I mean, that's most football players, and many of them will end up addicted to painkillers. That's most football players. Mm -hmm. And then there are some. Big problem, but it's still a small total number. Anyway, I just, I mean, I, I think, you know, to some extent, yes, I will plead guilty to this straw man that, um, that you know, people are... are wow, he admitted it! <laughs> Yes. Stop but, saying, uh, <laughs> make a movie about it. Make a movie. But I Dan, think, I'm sorry. We're going to have to let you go. <laughs> Get Lansman on line three. But I, in, in my piece, I quote, you know, there. I think it was Sports Illustrated. Someone organized a screening of concussion for former NFL players. And there were mm -hmm. these a bunch of articles that came out of that about these guys who are just, you know, sobbing. And they're, um, you know, they're, they're, it's like they're having sort of PTSD attacks. And one of them says... You know, he's crying. It's Keith McCants, former of formerly of Tennessee. And he says, if I had known I was killing people, I never would have put on that jersey. And this is just melodrama. I mean, it's just not true. And then, you know, that's I think that is that idea is genuinely out there that this is directly killing people. And it, it is an exaggeration. And I think that at this point, OK, I I may have where I think I've I've softened my position since Stefan, since the last time you and I debated this is I think that. <laughs> Back, you know, all the way back in 2009, I think it probably was valuable in the law in in the big picture 
for the media to be exaggerating these accounts of player suicides and, and, and attributing them without any real skepticism um, or paying attention to the facts to the football. It was that exaggeration that pushed the NFL to to cave in and start taking this a little bit more seriously. We can argue whether they actually take it seriously now, but more seriously than they did before. So that's good. But I feel like, okay, mm-hmm. fine. We've, we've had that kind of, you know, um, correction that's now there's serious research being done. I think now it's time to stop exaggerating and, and to let go of this sort of suicide claim, to let go of the idea that, you know, as Mike was saying, you know, so many in casual speech about this, people just assume that most football players are, you know, going crazy or um, losing their minds. And it's just not true. And there I are just, all right, Steph, yeah, Stefan okay, wants to have one sorry. final thought here. I just, I just, <laughs> I just don't see. Over this. <laughs> I just don't see the media exaggeration part. Uh, I think that these are fair stories to tell. I, I'm part of a, an email group that includes a few former NFL players, and one of them wrote last week, I've seen my brain through multiple scan applications, and it's fucked. If it wasn't for Omalu, I would never have understood why I was doing crazy, out-of-true-character things that nearly cost me my life and, more important, my family. Now, Dan, you could argue that that might not explain why he was doing out-of-character things that nearly cost him his life. On the other hand, the existence of this storytelling um, and this reporting, more to the point, by people like the Fainaru brothers and Alan Schwartz in the New York Times originally, have done a service to raise awareness and let people know when they see Odell Beckham Jr. flying through the air like a missile and directing the crown of his helmet at Josh Norman's head, that that's a dangerous act. And football people knew that was a dangerous act a hundred years ago. But for the general public to know that, I think is important. I think you're both right, though. The problem with a movie like Concussion is that it turns it into a false melodramatic narrative. Concussion. The real, the real melodrama is enough. Concussion. Go see it Christmas Day. <laughs> Go see Concussion on Christmas Day. Read Dan Ingber's article and slate. Uh, Dan, thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you. Give the gift of Slate Plus to another Slate fan in your life, and they'll receive all the benefits of membership. Ad-free podcasts, bonus podcast segments, access to our ambitious multi-part Slate academies, and so much more. No wrapping required. Give Slate Plus today. Visit slate.com slash give plus. Stefan, you just mentioned uh, the Josh Norman Odell Beckham Jr. Uh, what, what did we settle on? Embrolio? Fufara. Fufara. We've got to use Fufara more. Get that into the conversation. Um, they were attacking each other all game, and Beckham made like a kind of 10-yard head start sprint directly helmet-to-helmet into Norman's head and was not ejected from the game. Seemed pretty clear to everyone who was watching that that should have happened. Um, pro football talk says a league source um, believes that he should have been ejected, most likely is that he'll get a one-game suspension. Adam Schefter, who's generally not known as being highly critical of NFL brass, uh, tweeted on Monday morning, for as tough a season as NFL officials have had, they have not had a worse game than Panthers-Giants. Bad calls, lost control, just awful. Um, It does seem like this year there's been just a louder conversation about the NFL officiating being bad. There was a game between the Jaguars and the Ravens where the wrong team 
won. The Jaguars yeah. won won the game, um, and it would have obviously been a much bigger deal if anybody if those teams had you know games of any consequence this year. They're both going to miss the playoffs most likely. Um, so, Mike, we could go on and list all manner of uh, calls this year. Catch catch rules was the guy out of bounds. Um, but do you think that it's accurate that the refereeing has gotten worse or that the tenor of a conversation around refereeing has changed somehow? Well, here's what I think. But first, let's bring in Mike Pereira to tell us what we th- <laughs> should think. This is I, it might be true, but there's we have no way to evaluate this. So just on a lark, I started watching old Super Bowls, and it's crazy. It's crazy for all the reasons you think it should be crazy, but there were no replays, and when they were, they didn't show anything. So just the amount of technology, how clear it is, the number of replays we have, and then, of course, with replays going to the booth, it means the play is stopped so often, and we just love the forensic videography that is the NFL. And I think it's even bigger than we love to get calls right in football. I mean, my theory is that there's so much in life that the right or wrong doesn't apply to. Like whatever your political persuasion is, you definitely think that either Donald Trump lies with impunity or Hillary Clinton lies with impunity or or they all do. So it's nice to have this one area where we tell ourselves that the right thing is always done, but this leads to such scrutiny that it's inevitable that it will seem like the refereeing is worse than it's ever been. There have been a couple, you know, NFL admits, NFL vice president of officiating Dean Blandino admits that that phrase has been in a lot of headlines. But isn't that kind of a positive thing? You know, they they would just uh, in the past obfuscate or talk about what the definition of catch is. So my take is I have no idea, and we uh, if the officiating is worse, and we have no real basis or we have no way to ever judge if it's worse because there is so many more intense camera angles that could never lead us to conclude that it's better, but can only lead us to conclude that it's worse. Well, we know what the NFL claims the error rate is. Adam Kilgore had a piece in the Washington Post where Dean Blandino admitted that the <laughs> officials had committed four and a half mistakes per game over the course of 160 plays in a typical NFL game. And he said that that rate had remained steady in the past 10 or 15 years. And so we just have to take his word for it. I agree with Mike that there's no way that that could be correct just because we have so much more information now in terms of, you know, pixels on the screen. Like we can tell whether something's a mistake, whereas before it would have, you know, been in a, the realm of like who who the hell knows. I mean, also there's like Twitter and stuff, which just amplifies every mistake and people get just so angry and egg each other on to talk about oh, how right. bad the forensic the pathology are. is far more sophisticated than it's ever been. And there's no getting around the fact that fans will are, are empowered by that to draw conclusions instantly. The refs suck. That play was wrong. This rule was misapplied. Everyone is a rule book. Um, doesn't help that the NFL's rule book gets more obfuscating and dense and complex so that we are at the point, Mike, where we can't really clearly articulate what, what a catch is, something so fundamental to the sport. But what do we know? We do know some other journalistic fact, some evidence that maybe there is reason to believe that officiating is worse. 
And one of those facts is that there's been far more turnover in the officiating core in the NFL and that there are more younger officials, one in two years of experience on NFL crews than there have been at any time um, in in the league, at least since they kept track of this stuff, I guess. And the NFL says that the crew, you know, refs were getting old and they need to replace them with new who can Talent. run faster because the players are so fast and so strong and can see better because the players are so fast and everything moves so quickly. Just get Brock Osweiler to become an NFL referee. He's 6'8", kind of mobile. <laughs> there's, our, there's our solution. I don't know if he's fast enough, though. Yeah. So uh, Richard Sherman put forward uh, the Seahawks cornerback uh, on the MMQB for ideas for how to fix NFL officiating. I'm going to get to his first idea last, but um, – the last three were add an eighth official, just more eyes out on the field, reconfigure the positions. And I think this makes sense that the two kind of biggest calls that refs can make are offensive and defensive pass interference because that's a spot foul. And so if you call that, that's like a 40-yard penalty that can have a huge effect on the game. And so he wants the refs to be in a better position to make those calls, just put them in the defensive secondary. And then he says improve communication between players and officials, which is just kind of self-serving and we don't care about. I don't care if they tell Richard Sherman what's what's going on. Um, but his number one thing is simplify the rules, which is kind of what you were saying, Stefan. But this strikes me as uh, like a Carlia Fiorina-esque, like we're going to get the tax code down to three pages. Mm-hmm. It's it's a total fantasy. And I think everyone says it like, you know, the catch rule is too complicated or we need to cut the rule book in half. But I want specific policy proposals from each member of the Legion of Boom about exactly how we're going to do that, how we're going to get it through the competition committee and what those changes would look like. Also, these changes, like a- these changes really sunk compact stock back in the 90s. <laughs> I'm getting demagogued to by, uh, you know, a uh, a member of the all-pro team, and I don't like it. No, but seriously, I think that just saying that the rule book needs to be simplified, that seems like a canard to me. I mean, is, is that something that can just be easily done with the stroke of a pen? I don't, Sherman? Think, I, I don't think it can. I mean, the, I think that the, the trend with something like this, it's like not to make a Scrabble analogy, but we don't take words out of the Scrabble dictionary. We add words to the Scrabble dictionary. And the more complicated, the more you add to the NFL rulebook, the more you create the appearance of specificity and finality and and and, and truth. We'll, meet, we'll make the catch rule more uh, simpler and easier to understand by making it more complicated and harder to understand. Where have I read that? <laughs> what historical novel? touched on that. I don't know. But so um, many of the mistakes are not because of complicated rules. They just miss a penalty, right? They blow a call. It's not like no one knows what the rule is. It's like, oh, we thought it was interference, but it wasn't. Right. And the like missing the false start call and the Jaguars-Ravens game. I think there are different categories of frustration that fans have that all get lumped into the ref suck. One of them is like, this call was obvious. Everyone knows what it should have been, and they made the wrong call. They were standing right there. How could they have made the wrong call? The other one is, we don't know what a catch is. What's a catch? You know, he caught it, but then they said it wasn't a catch. And people just – everybody says, like, refereeing is bad. And the, those two are just complete opposite complaints. But we have the ability – and we are we used have the to, technology. we have the technology. We are now so accustomed to the sense of 
absolute certainty that, you know, Bill Belichick is kind of right. Make it all reviewable. If we've got the technology and we've got someone watching every second of every game at NFL headquarters, um, why not? allow them to make more determinations? Why not allow them to, to, to be consulted more frequently? And that's what's going to happen. Dean Blandino uh, announced that the NFL is going to um, involve him personally, <laughs> starting with the playoffs. They'll be able to consult with the league office uh, to help make calls. One, I, I'd like some floating in a blimp above every playoff stadium with I, a uh, telescope. As with uh, the calls to take regulations off the books, I like good regulations, not less regulations. So if you go through the list of games where there's been such uh, an outcry over the refereeing, so what's the regulation you take off the book to make the uh, Odell Beckham series of fist fights on Sunday night <laughs> a penalty or not a penalty? <laughs> and when the uh, Chargers kick off to the Steelers and the clock operator lets 18 seconds off the clock, what's the rule that do you just underline the rule to say the clock shouldn't have started. Everyone thinks the clock should have started. So what's the rule you take off the books? Or what about when this is a rule they didn't know, that Lions game when that ball was batted out the back of the end zone, right, early mm-hmm. in the season. Right. So that was one the refs didn't know. But if you take a rule off the books, it wouldn't have been a penalty because the, you can't say the refs w- didn't know it because, hey, it's not a penalty. But we want that to be a penalty. People weren't saying afterwards that shouldn't be a penalty or maybe some were. But you have that debate if it should be a penalty. At what point do you say, well, we all think it should be a penalty, but that would lead to one more penalty. So let's just have it not be a penalty because we have a rule cap at 1,200. Taking the rules off the books is stupid. Well, I think there should be a pause for, you know, 30 seconds between each play for the referee to, you know, get a Microsoft Surface tablet. Mm -hmm. Which we still call call an iPad. On the broadcast. And there, and there should be a Twitter list that the referee consults mm-hmm. of, you know, a council of wise fans. Or t- yeah, and the fans will tell, them, will tell them whether the call was bad. T-F-D-O-T, top referee doubters on Twitter. Could I, I just want to throw one thing out there. You know how so many sports are, so many things associated with sports, people will say, you know, I do it for free. And yeah, people play baseball recreationally. I think the institution of the guy, so Mike Pereira with the NFL and the other networks have their own ex-ref to explain what a horse collar is. And they have Steve Javi with the NBA. ESPN hired him to be the, you know, Pereira equivalent with the NBA. It strikes me as if the pay isn't good, I don't understand why the guys would do this job. This seems like such a terrible job. Hey, Mike Pereira, you're in New York. Tell me what a horse collar is. I guess you get to be on TV. But don't you think most <laughs> rational people want to say, you know what, I retired for a reason. I don't want to have to define horse collardy again. You know what? The pay was so bad being a referee that they need to do the consulting gig after they retire. Yes, it's the revolving referee door, yes. And that's part of the problem, right? The, the, the referees in the NFL are not full-time employees. They are school principals and lawyers, and they get on a plane on Saturday and go ref a game on Sunday. They the should NFL live in the stadium. Refer- whoa, whoa, whoa. NFL referees earn an average of close to $200,000 in pay. They're doing well. They're doing well. Yeah. All right. So we've solved we've solved that problem. Let's move on. Let's move along to to making our holiday shopping easier with the Slate Gift Guide. Ah! A curated collection of products selected by Slate editors and writers. These are the things that most improved our lives this year, wrapped up in one guide for you. 
Find something for everyone on your list. And you can find that at picks.slate.com, P-I-C-K-S.slate.com. What is a pick? The NFL rule on the pick is very unclear. Picks.slate.com. In 2015, Serena Williams won three Grand Slam titles and lost a total of three matches. She also made a triumphant return to Indian Wells, the tournament that she'd boycotted along with her sister since 2001 after unfounded allegations of Williams' sister's match-fixing led the crowd to turn on her in an ugly and racially motivated way. Scott Price laid all this out in a long feature in Sports Illustrated and an issue with Serena lounging on a throne under the banner Sports Person of the Year. Serena, though, did not win the online fan vote for Sports Person slash Mammal of the Year. That honor went to American Pharoah, horse racing's first triple crown winner since the 70s. American Pharoah earned 47% of the votes compared to less than 1% for that woman who hits the ball. Uh, But even so, no horse, no horse riding person on the cover of SI, which made a lot of horse lovers very sad and angry. Writing on the website Horse Racing Nation, Steve Zipsy called it a sad announcement and concluded, Sports Illustrated, your agenda is showing. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Joining us now is uh, the kind of human embodiment of the Sports Illustrated agenda. It's Tim Layden. (laughs) He wrote a story about American Pharoah and the Sports Person of the Year issue, honoring the horse with the Sports World's Achievement of the Year. Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. (laughs) <laughs> you, you sound very sad. No, I'm not. Downcast. I'm truly not. I'm I'm 100% behind the choice of Serena. I would have been 100% behind Steph Curry or Jordan Spieth or American Pharoah. I'm. It's fine. It's a it's an award that some people get in a room and talk about and decide, and they usually get it right in some way. It's it's fine. I find it curious that of all the complainers, <laughs> strangely silent, American Pharoah himself. <laughs> you know he he's had that he's had that quality about him throughout this entire triple crown run. He's a very <laughs> very silent champion in that way, and then we love that about him. That is true. Taking after Sunday silence, real quiet, just a real long line of <laughs> stoic stoic horses. So your piece in SI on the on American Pharaoh was was great. I mean the pieces you've written about him throughout the triple crown run have been great, and a lot of people appreciated the fact and kind of understood, didn't take the sports man, person, horse of the year thing too seriously. But then, like, there are, here are some comments on your piece. I just printed six copies of the cover of SI and lay them on my dog's cage floor. These are the comments on the piece about the horse. Um, the internet was made for horses. Look through the pictures on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, etc. Your swimsuit pictures are eclipsed. I don't really know what that means. So it's a why, horse award. The eclipse, is, so. I guess so. Um, why do you think fans and I've you know read comments about uh, this sort of thing from the horse people over many years? So I think it's fair to generalize. Why do you think that fans of horses and horse racing get so kind of you know angry, excited, exercised about you know when they? feel like their sport isn't getting recognized? You know, I, it's, it caught me, I expected a backlash a little bit. I mean, I, obviously I knew about this. I mean, you don't do 
covers and stories on, in two days. So, I mean, this was a few, some time in coming before the announcement. So I expected some blowback. I, it was much more uh, vehement than I expected. And I, what I've, I think it's horse racing is a minor sport, like most sports. You know, you separate out the NFL and college football, and then then you go down from there to baseball and the NBA and. And then everything else is sort of sort of has its vertical audience, and and most of them, I think, accept that position and enjoy the company of their like-minded fans. And I guess what I guess horse racing feels that they're either something more than that, or or deserve something more than that, or that everyone who doesn't accord them that status is is disrespective of their of their history and their place in the, in the pantheon of sports. And I, I, I don't think I understood that until last week. I, I just, I, I, I was disappointed that racing fans wanted to turn this against Serena Williams, which was uh, unpleasant. And I was disappointed that they weren't able in, you know, at the end of December after, you know, a, a great year for them and probably one that won't be repeated anytime soon. Couldn't just enjoy that. I, it was, I was surprised. I, you know, I think, you know, fans of luge or riflery or archery or, or you know, any one of many other sports sort of understand what their place is and, and accept it. There were some losers that were absolutely overlooked for Sports Person of the Year, and I think you should convey that to your editors, Tim. It's really, it was a disgrace. The luge, the luge community is very upset. But the horse people have always had a tendency toward the ridiculous. When Barbaro died... You know, there were there was poetry and there were artwork was created and there were Twitter feeds created. Um, this this there's a strain of this in the in the horse community. I think that's part of that is they love these animals and they love the majesty of these animals and they really do respect the the beauty and grace and strength of these creatures. As do you and as do other sort of sane. Uh, chroniclers of the sport. I mean, there's a lovely moment in your piece where you, you and, and uh, American Pharaoh shared a, an intimate moment in, in, in the stall. And I thought that was really beautiful. You were feeding him carrots. An intimate moment in the stall. There was some nuzzling. Correct me if I'm wrong, Tim. No, there was, there was, I mean, I had carrots. I had carrots. So it's, you know, I, you know, it's like, uh, there was motivation to be nuzzled there. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, to me, that, that part was, for the Barbaro thing, I mean, that, that horse, was injured and eventually died. So I get, I, I understand the whole, I mean, I'm not a horse, but I didn't ride horses. I didn't, I've never owned or I'm, I'm not really one of those. I like writing about the sport. It's rich with stories. People have had great life experience, much more so than your average NFL wide receiver. And, and so, I mean, I like that part. I like writing about NFL wide receivers too. But horse racing does give you a, a, a canvas on which to write that is a lot of fun. Um, you know, the thing with the, you know that I wrote with being in the presence of the horse, to me that was just cool for me because he's a great athlete. And you can debate that, and I know people love to debate that. But, you know, he, that's the way I view it. You know, he can run very fast for a long time. That's hard to do. And, and, but he can't express how he does that. And to me, that's a, you know, when you're hanging around, I, I just, I kind of wish I could ask him, but I can't, of mm-hmm. course. And that's a great canvas for jokes too. But at the same time, it, I just found it, I just found it sort of cool, you know, just 
kind of wanted to say, you know, how do you do this? But, you know, can't do that, so I just kind of soak it in, and uh, it was fun. You know, Give him another carrot. Yeah, another carrot. Yeah. For, for the record, I'm more than fine with the decision. I think it was a shame that Steve Harvey mistakenly put the crown on American Pharaoh first and then had to put it on <laughs> Serena. That was awkward. American Pharaoh handled it well, like a true champion. My question, though, is about the internet poll. So when the editors are in the room, does that even come up? Is that just something that the guys on the website did and no one even mentioned what the poll is? Is it conveyed to the readers that this poll will be anything other than uh, a poll? Like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has a poll that accounts for like one out of a thousand votes such that NWA got 0.4% of the fans vote and they actually made it into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and yes, got 16% of the fans vote and they didn't. But there is like a tiny little bit of the fans poll that factors in your decision. So what's the, what's the deal with the SI relationship with the reader poll online? Yeah, I, I, you know, I talked about this at the Sportsman event thing Tuesday with Ryan Hunt, who's the managing editor of SI. And he, they all, the people on the dot-com side and the management side of dot-com regretted that they didn't make things a little more clear. I, they didn't know who they were dealing with. I didn't know who they were dealing with. I mean, I really didn't understand the fanaticism that was... You could vote many times, and I think many horse fans voted many, 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 many times. And I wish we had, we, the, the precede to the poll said, this is a poll to express your preference, and SI editors will make their choice on such and such a date. I guess we should have put that in a bigger font, maybe, or something. Make it clear this was fun. This was just, just for fun. Let us know who you love, but we don't care. You know, a small number of editors are going to go into a room and have a discussion and make a decision here that's going to be based on many things other than simply uh, performance, although obviously Serena's performance deserves it, but she also succeeds on many other levels. Oh, and there's a logic factor at work, too, and most readers obviously don't know how the sausage is made. I mean, to, to negotiate a... Josh is rolling his R's. I, that was not a horse joke, Josh. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to Scott Price over the weekend, who Scott wrote the Serena Sports uh, Person of the Year cover story. I mean, this thing takes months to negotiate and plan and keep silent and set up interviews that allowed him to have a tremendous amount of access to write this profile. And obviously the public doesn't get that when you do a poll like this, it's really just to get some traffic to the website. I, was, I wrote the piece on Drew Brees when he was sports with you in 2010, and I think I turned that in around November 15th, something like that. So, I mean, yeah, it's a long process, and sometimes the choice is apparent way, way before December. So, I mean, I think the explanation here is that it's the combination of, like, the extreme passion and sometimes lack of logic that people have around sports and the extreme passion and sometimes lack of logic that people have around animals. And it's like the perfect combination of like, I want to tell a quick story here about the most mail I've ever gotten for a story that I've written on slate, which was right after Katrina, I went down to new Orleans. I wrote a series of pieces. That's where I'm from. It was like very emotionally taxing and difficult time for me and for a lot of people. And one of the pieces that I wrote, I was going around in a boat, um, on like an area where, you know, I used to drive to school every day. It was now like completely underwater. And I was with the National Guard, I think it was, and we're kind of going around. And this was, you know, maybe a week or a little after. And so they were still looking for people, but there wasn't really 
and it, there weren't really any people to be found at that point, which in some ways is good, in some ways is incredibly terrible and sad. Um, and so in the context of that, I've said that there aren't any signs of life, cl- making it very clear that it's no signs of human life. Later in the piece, I refer to the fact that there's a cat that was seen, like, a, you know, and that is sad that this cat is in this situation, but I think we need to put that in the proper context. And... I got literally hundreds and hundreds of emails from people saying, why did you not rescue the cat? Where is the cat so I can go and personally rescue it? And I got so angry about these emails. And I didn't get any – nobody wrote in to say anything about like, man, that was really sad that all these people died. Um, and so so just the way that people think that animals are innocent creatures, they didn't do anything to get – in this kind of situation, maybe that people could have made different decisions. But I think people just look at animals and like put put them on this like incredible pedestal. Certain people do. And when you have this animal that's a really once in a lifetime thing in a sport where this is a once in a lifetime achievement in the sport, the horse people are like, when are the rest of you gonna understand and appreciate like how special this is? And it's just like a slap in the face, a slap in a very long face. Um, <laughs> There, so there that's are, my that's are, my spiel about animals. No, no, there's and there's lots of examples of this. The Michael Vick situation with <clears throat> with his dogs was extremely emotional for a lot of people because dogs were involved. The single tweet that I sent out during the Sochi Olympics that got the most response was a picture of some stray dogs by a security checkpoint. You know, it's, so and, and in horse racing, dogs. people feel like they are not just fans of these horses; they feel like they are their their caretakers because if they don't, nobody else will which isn't true. They have great <laughs> caretakers in their daily life, but that's the way they feel. These, these, I mean, with, with American Pharaoh, when he kept running after the Triple Crown, most people were holding their breath that he wouldn't get hurt um, as much as being concerned that he would win. So you're absolutely right about all of that, and it enters into this entire response, and I just felt bad that people let it sully their experience from the entire year and that they drew... Serena Williams into it, who who can certainly take it because she's taken much worse, but she didn't deserve it. Well, Tim, your uh, piece was great, and I am not one of the people who wrote the anonymous comments calling uh, SI uh, a, a piece of garbage for not honoring American Pharaoh. I, ap- I appreciated it, and I took it in the spirit in which it was intended. Well, I have nothing left to say about American Pharaoh, I, that's, and I'm kind of glad he's retired in that respect. All right, sir. Well, we'll uh, we'll have you back on soon to talk about uh, Luge, maybe next year. <laughs> okay. Tim Layden is a writer for Sports Illustrated. Now it is time for after balls and just a brief, bite-sized moment of respect for the Mount Union Purple Raiders, who won their twelfth Division Three football title, beating St. Thomas of Minnesota, 49 to 35 in the Stag Bowl. And as, as one does when you read about the Mountain Union Purple Ra- Raiders, you start thinking about colored Raiders. Colored Raiders are a thing. You've got your Purple Raiders. You've got the Texas Tech Red Raiders, mm-hmm. the Middle Tennessee Blue mm-hmm. Raiders. They're actually, if you look at the Wikipedia list of college nicknames, they're more colored Raiders than plain Raiders. Mm. Uh, the, the plain Raiders are Wright State, Colgate, and Franklin University. Then for the colored Raiders, you have Mount Union Purple, Rutgers Newark, Newark Scarlet, Texas Tech Red, Shippensburg Red, Middle Tennessee Blue, Lindsey Wilson College Blue. <laughs> but 
Here's Isn't what, that a weatherman? Who the hell Lindsay Wilson College? <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay Wilson College Blue Raiders. So the only uh, – maybe this isn't unique, but the only one I could find that seems to be unique as a colored Raider are the Ridley High School Green Raiders of Folsom, Pennsylvania. They're the only Green Raider I could find except for the Mount Union uh, Environmental Club, which is also the Green Raiders. But uh, Ridley High School Green Raiders, these Where acrobats are for you. Folsom because my mother is an alumna of Ridley Park High School. Which is it's not just the Green Raiders? Philadelphia. I don't know if that's the same. Not in Folsom, Pennsylvania. Different Raiders. Mike, what is your Green Raider? I just want to note that uh, Lindsay Wilson College is named after the late stepson of Catherine Wilson. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how they describe it. Stefan, what Wilson. is your Green Raider? <laughs> <laughs> so I was listening to the NFL. I rented a car and it came with Sirius Satellite Radio and the good kind with Howard 100 on it. So I was, I was really psyched. And I volunteered to pick my sister up at the airport because I could listen to all the NFL games. And I have to say, as much as we criticize the NFL announcing on TV, there is, I don't know if it's a level of professionalism, and just a lot of graphics to show and replays to show. So maybe it depresses, suppresses the amount of idiocy that the announcers could get into. Yeah, I'm going to say that's it. Because they've hired a few guys that if they were given the time and space that the radio allows for, would be as bad as the radio announcers. But radio announcing on football, I only listen to New York radio announcing. I listen to a lot of out-of-town announcers with baseball. There's so many more opportunities to do it. And even when I'm in other towns, I can't really think of too many times that I've been driving around in a car and really listening and paying attention to radio announcing on football. And it's it's bad. It's a bad state of affairs. There's this guy, Paul Allen, who does the Vikings broadcasts. He's not the billionaire, or maybe he is, and this is what he likes to do with his time. And he does, he's like a little bit John Sterling-esque and Randall with the sack. Seems weird on a football broadcast because all of the sounds of football unlike every other sport, are mediated through a national uh, a broadcast a voice meant for a national audience. The exception is your local broadcast when you listen to that game on radio. But I guess the flourishes or the things that, that are different from your local guy stand out more. But also when your local guy is a homer, it doesn't strike you as much as when during the Colts Texans game, they're outwardly rooting, the Colts broadcasters are outwardly rooting for the Texans to miss this field goal to go up 16-10. I think the uh, play-by-play man says, you know, they give the field goal kicker stats, he's 7 for 7, and the color guy opines, time for him to go 7-8. and eight. It just seems really, really weird. But The thing that stood out the most was that all the cliches of broadcasting are so prevalent. There's no one to say, maybe no national columnist to shame you, maybe no executive to say that's bad. Maybe they're just tenured with their job. And if they love their team enough and say things like, let's hope this guy misses a field goal, the fans like you so much, they'll protest when you leave. But it seems like every cliche is there from too many men in the huddle. The announcer goes, how does that happen? Look, I understand that you're upset that it happens, (laughs) but football's a complicated game. Have you noticed, except for the offensive line and the quarterback, the guys come in and out every play. It seems like 
the question with too many men in the huddle should be, how does that not happen much more often? All right, so that's one of the things. And then the other one, and this has been a huge pet peeve of mine, but it's not said as often on television. Or maybe on television, you can easily gainsay the assertion that every interception is going to be a pick six. And I heard that three times listening to NFL games on the radio. Oh, there was nothing but green in front of him. And if he had that, it would have gone the distance. People tend not to realize that even at the moment, of interception, the other team can, in fact, close on you or chase an interceptor who is, you know, 10 yards behind the defense. That's it. Sirius Satellite Radio, an interesting prism into the football that we listen to. (laughs) Can we listen to Paul Allen's call of the Brett Favre interception in the NFC Championship game against the Saints? Oh, thank you. Brett Favre goes back to pass. He pumps. Now he fires over the middle. Intercepted. I can't believe what I'm seeing right now. It was intercepted by Tracy Porter. Near side to the 40. And John Sullivan runs him down at the 47-yard line. You've got to be kidding me. I can't believe what I just saw. Looking at that play, he should have just held on to it, Paul. He should have. He could have easily gotten five or six yards if he would have just pulled that thing down and dove forward. But why do you even ponder passing? I mean, you can take a knee and try a 56-yard field goal. This is not Detroit, man. This is the Super Bowl. Do you think that's why they drafted Christian Ponder, because of that phrase? <laughs> why do you even ponder passing? Here, let's, uh, listen to Steph- it. let's listen to it. There is a Paul Allen soundboard. I'll just get uh, Jared Allen sacked. Back to pass. Under duress. Sacked. It's another safety, and it's Jared Allen. There you go. There we go. Stefan, what is your Green Raider? Attentive afterball listeners will recall that a few weeks ago I talked about the 1965 Hollywood screwball comedy classic John Goldfarb, Please Come Home, about erstwhile college football player John Goldfarb, who ran 95 yards the wrong direction, earning him the nickname Wrong Way Goldfarb. Would anyone like to hear that clip of Richard Crenna as Goldfarb and Shirley MacLaine as his reportorial nemesis one more time? Popular demand? Yeah. Whatever you want. Let's play it. It's it's your journey. Okay. Ingham should be grateful. No one remembers John Goldfarb, but no one will ever forget wrong way. Oh, you four-eyed cobra. I've been running away from that name all my life. In the right direction, I hope. Blow it out your teapot, Iceberg. That's your nickname, isn't it? You've got an insolent mouth, Goldfarb. Go play with your typewriter. This little boy, Noah. <laughs> let mommy Give know. Give me that. <laughs> this is the State Department. You're in the wrong building. As I mentioned, the storyline is based on the infamous 1929 Rose Bowl run by Cal defensive lineman Roy Wrongway Regals. He ran a Georgia Tech fumble 60 plus yards the wrong way before he was turned around by his own teammate and then gang tackled by Tech on the Cal one. I've also mentioned in other afterballs the football gadfly Matt Cheney, who trolls databases for old stories about the century plus awareness and cover up of brain injuries in the sport. Well, this past week, those worlds collided. Cheney sent his E-list news that could help explain why Roy Regals ran the wrong way. 
Maybe he was concussed. In May 1928, Dr. Harrison Martland delivered his landmark paper linking boxing and punch drunk syndrome to the New York Academy of Medicine, and the paper was published in October in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Martland described, quote, a very definite brain injury due to single or repeated blows on the head or jaw, which cause multiple concussion hemorrhages in the deeper portions of the cerebrum. In the late stages, the symptoms often mimic those seen in diseases characterized by the Parkinsonian syndrome, end quote. Cheney tells me that in the months between Martland's study and the Rose Bowl on January 1st, 1929, quote, sports pages are full of punch-drunk illusions, such as describing a listless team or an individual's TBI on a football field, end quote. So after Regals' run, it wasn't surprising that reporters would make the connection. The Associated Press reported that Regals, quote, had taken a ferocious pounding on the tech line plays, end quote. The AP reported that Regals was removed from the game a few minutes after the safety, but returned to start the second half, and he was praised for coming back and playing well despite his blunder. The Portsmouth, Ohio Daily Times which is one of the clips that uh, that Matt Cheney sent around, ran the AP story under this headline, Georgia Tech wins national title by defeating California. Was Regal's punch drunk when he made that weird run? Hmm. Reporters took their suspicions that Regals was concussed to the locker room. The International News Service reported that Cal coach Clarence Nibs Price, Nibs, took Regals out of the game after the safety because he thought he was punch drunk. The coach apparently used those very words. The INS reported that Regals, as athlete to this day or want to do, denied that he was brain injured. Quote, Regals, in describing his costly blunder, explained the play today as follows. The INS story said, I wasn't out of my head and I hadn't been hit. I was spun around like a top. I guess I lost my brain in the meantime. In other words, wrong way Regals was probably concussed. No word yet on whether wrong way Goldfarb also was concussed. He might have been, right? Again, plot line that the filmmakers chose to ignore. A lot of parallels with concussion, Josh. Josh, what's your Green Raider? As listeners of this show might know, I've been guilty in the past of confusing the made-for-TV superstars competition with the made-for-TV battle of the network stars competition. Superstars was the thing in which uh, athletes from various sports competed in various races and obstacle course type events to vie for the title of the world's best all-around athlete. The first six winners were pole vaulter Bob Segrin, soccer player Kyle Root Jr., football player slash criminal defendant O.J. Simpson, soccer player Kyle Root Jr., soccer player Kyle Root Jr., and water skier Wayne Grimditch, which proves something, though I'm not yet sure what that something is. Battle of the Network Stars was a thing where Gabe Kaplan and Telly Savalas led teams of TV actors against each other, again in various races and obstacle course events, but also in Simon Says. Simon Says makes for great TV. Mm -hmm. What I didn't know until yesterday is that the power and the glory of superstars and battle of the network stars combined and a glorious one-off event, Celebrity Superstars, which aired on ABC in 1975. The competitors included singer Bill Withers, chicken impresario and compulsive gambler Kenny Rogers, fashion designer Oleg Cassini, Jaws <laughs> author Peter Benchley, and inevitably George Plimpton, who inevitably finished second to last just ahead of actor Clifton Davis, the star of the not long-running sitcom That's My Mama. The winner of Celebrity Superstars by just a single point was Joseph Stalin. I remember watching That's My Mama. <laughs> 
The winner, Stefan, was Joseph Stalin. That is a man who once played Joseph Stalin in a TV movie. He also played Lieutenant Colonel Frank Kilgore from Apocalypse Now, Major Frank Burns and MASH, Tom Hagen in The Godfather. Yes, it is Robert Duvall who was propelled to victory in Celebrity Superstars by taking the top spots in tennis, swimming, and bicycling, and a second in the 100-yard dash behind Bill Use Me Withers. You want to guess how fast they ran 100 yards? (laughs) 17.3 seconds. Come on, this is Robert Duvall we're talking about. I took the over like you normally do. (laughs) Withers ran it in a blistering, blistering Bill Use Me Withers. Ran it in 11.3. Wow. Du- Duvall just behind wow, 11, 11.33. Wow. Fit. Robert Duvall. Uh, Must also, have been right after the apartment. When dated. Now. When dated. <laughs> <laughs> also, also in that heat, coming in with a did not finish, was George Lindsay, a.k.a. Goober Pyle from the Andy Griffith show. <laughs> <laughs> and now... What this afterball has been building up to. So you're du- saying, Duval- so you're saying, then as in presidential politics, <laughs> Lindsay dropped out. Okay, thank you. <laughs> what we've all been waiting for: Duval's victory in Celebrity Superstars earned him a spot in the '76 regular Superstars against actual athletes. In that competition, Duval faced the immortal Kyle Rowe Jr., three-time Superstars champion, in the finals of tennis. According to a 1981 article in the Christian Science Monitor. Duvall started playing in the 1960s and approached tennis maniacally, spending six hours a day at it. It's like a great, a great Santini-esque. Um, so how did Duvall do against Kyle Rote Jr., who scored 42 goals in 121 appearances for the Dallas Tornado of the North American Soccer League? It was a match for the ages, the great Santini versus Kyle Rote Jr., Harry in Days of Thunder versus Kyle Rowe Jr. Here is a clip of the legendary Keith Jackson calling the action. The other surprise came when Robert Duvall, one of the fine actors in the world, failed to win the tennis. Now, he is one of the fine tennis players in Southern California in the amateur ranks, was outstanding in the celebrities competition as he won it last year. But he came up against Kyle Rowe Jr. in the final, and having been very busy this winter working in motion pictures and in the theater, Bob Duvall admitted that his concentration broke down. He got a little tired in the final match, and he wound up losing to Kyle Rowe Jr. by a score of 6-4. to four. But I must say, as Kyle Rowe Sr. fretted in the shade under that Panama hat, that Kyle Rowe Jr. played the best tennis in the match against Robert Duvall that I have ever seen him play in the Superstars competition. For example, watch this kind of shot making. He was just absolutely outstanding and beat Duvall by a score of 6-4 to four to take the first victory in the competition. So I apologize for the scratchiness of that clip. The Library of Congress clearly needs to preserve the film of the 1976 Superstars competition. I also must say that there's really nothing worse than watching two people who aren't very good at tennis play tennis. You're not missing out on much, Stefan. Um, Despite that disappointing defeat, Duvall came in a respectable sixth out of 15 in the Superstars final. Who'd he beat? Primarily due to his first place finish in bowling which he won 189 to 180 over Kyle Rowe Jr. Duvall finished ahead of such supposed athletes, quote-unquote, as New York Nick Dave DeBusher, Baseball Hall of Famer Mike Schmidt, Olympic decathlon gold medalist Rafer Johnson, nice showing Rafer, and bodybuilder slash Incredible Hulk Lou Ferrigno. Finishing in first place, say it with me. Kyle Rowe Jr. for Pete. No, this this was one of the three. 
That was one of the three? It was one of the three. So they kicked him out of the Superstars competition because he won too much. Two Superstar. Two Superstar, Kyle Root Jr. We would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Christina Cody. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.